Thanks for listening to the Journey Podcast. We're glad you're here. Journey exists to engage people in the process of knowing Jesus Christ. We pray this podcast engages you and encourages you to become more like Him. Well, good morning, Journey. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, we've sang together. We've worshiped our God together. Now we're going to get a chance to learn together and, and just talk through some scriptures that a lot of times we kind of get confused on. But before we do that, I want to celebrate together. Um, 18 years, that's a big deal. Like, we can buy lottery tickets now. And so, I mean, and, uh, we could do a lot. No, I'm just kidding. I, I was saying this to somebody earlier. Regardless of you onboarded, if you onboarded 18 years ago, if you onboarded 18 minutes ago, man, you've, you're part of our family. And, and we would not be where we're at right now if it wasn't for all the hard work and the volunteers and the people that do what they do around here. So I want to end celebrating with Jesus and celebrating Jesus. I want to celebrate just the people that just do what they do around here. So I just want to give a big round of applause to everybody. It's, it's been a great day. There's all kinds of cool stuff going on out there. Um, but it's, it's an exciting day for another reason, too. It's exciting day because I get to start my new favorite series. And so it's going to be exciting. And we're going to talk uh, from the book of Revelation. Um, and the book of Revelation is a little intimidating. I was just telling one of our elders, my, actually my small group leader, um, like I didn't realize how intimidating this, just a few passages of scriptures would be. I, I've spent more time on this message here than probably any other message I have, and I'm assuming it's going to be the same way. Uh, it's because of this. Not, any, not everybody knows the answers. As a matter of fact, we don't even know the questions sometimes when it comes to the book of Revelation. So I'm not going to reveal the mark of the beast in this series, so don't, like, don't get your hopes up that we're going to do that one. And I'm not going to tell you uh, who the man-child is in Scripture, and nor am I going to tell you when Jesus is coming back, because the Bible literally says that nobody knows except for uh, God himself. And so we're not going to get into all that. But what we are going to do is we're going to look at some churches, seven churches. Some made some really good, you know, big moves. Some made some big mistakes. And what we're going to try to do is just kind of just pull us up, you know, get those truths out that what they did well and put them in a journey. And the things that they didn't do well, we're going to use as a warning and go, hey, we want, we want to make sure we don't do those things. So um, I just want to kind of caveat this. I want a big disclaimer. I don't know everything about the book of Revelation. Nobody on our staff knows everything about the book of Revelation. Our access group, you know, they don't know everything. Pat, you're really smart, but you don't know everything about the book of Revelation. Hey, happy birthday, Pat. Give it up for Pat's birthday. It's Pat's birthday year. I don't know how they do it in your culture, but it's birthday year. It's exciting. No. So we're going to look at the book of Revelation. And the first church we're going to look at is the church of Ephesus, okay? Now, even by the word Ephesus, the, the word Ephesus means desirable. And so it means it's a place where people wanted to go. It was the epicenter of art. So some of the greatest things of art, works of art, came out of this Ephesus area. It was also a place of great knowledge. They had some of the biggest libraries, and all the great books of, of literature were found in the, the libraries in Ephesus. So it was a pretty big deal. It was also an epicenter for athletics. So they had huge coliseums. As a matter of fact, in this area of Turkey, we know it as Turkey now, it was Asia Minor. They had the biggest coliseums, and that reflected in the biggest community that they had. Uh, it would be equivalent to something today, maybe like a Los Angeles or maybe uh, a New York City or an Atlanta. Um, it, would be, it would be a really desirable place for people to live where culture was. And so it's interesting because on Paul's second missionary journey, uh, he visits Ephesus and he plants a church there. And it's interesting because he plants a church. As a matter of fact, churches like Journey and churches all over the world were planted using the model that, that Paul did in the book of Ephesus. So Paul would go to a place, he would find it was desirable, he would see a people group that you know, it was far from Jesus and there would be gospel presentations made. And so Paul spent about 
two or three years teaching in the cities and addressing the false doctrine and practices of that region. So what they had is they had a a group of people called Gnostics. And we're not going to get really kind of real deep into this today, but Gnostics were people that were um, mystics. They, they, They understood and they related to who Jesus was, but they didn't think he was in fact God himself. And it was a sect of the Gnostics called the Nicolaitans. And Nicolaitans are going to be addressed in Revelation chapter 2. And if you saw it on the side screen, and Pat in a couple of weeks is going to talk a little bit more about the Nicolaitans and really what they're... But I'll say it this way. The Nicolaitans forced their religion on people. There was no grace involved. You did it that way, their way, because it was the only way. And so it's a situation where uh, two or three years, they addressed those uh, bad doctrines. About a decade after the church had started, Paul, uh, the writer of, of, of many of the books in the Bible, the planner of many... Uh, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, and that's important because we're going to go to the book of Ephesians today, and we're going to find out that years before Revelation was given to John on the island of Patmos, years before, Paul had addressed in several of his epistles the dangers of the church of Ephesus, some of the things that they were going through. So in the first epistle, which is 1 Timothy, we begin to start to see the evidence of some doctrinal drift. They started getting off course a little bit. And remember, we've said this before, one degree right here in 10 years or 20 years is way offline. And that's why we're so, we're like, we say that God's word is the, is the source of all of our information. Everything we do, we go to that, that source. It's one of our we statements, right? And so it's because of this right here. It's easy to drift off. And, and we read about it in First Timothy. It says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. So they were te- teaching Gnosticism. They were teaching the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And then it goes on to say in verse four, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Remember, Paul's big thing as believers were saved by faith not by works, the Bible says, so that no one can boast. They were reversing that trend. They were saying that you're, you're actually saved by works the more things you do, and it's not by faith at all. So we see this all going down. And at that time, the church began to see some problems, uh, and they actually had a church split. Now, I have never been, and I hope I never am, part of a huge church split. But I have friends that have been a part of churches where they were three, 400, and 150 people left, in this situation, there was literally a chasm and it was, there was a divide right down the middle because many of them believed what, what Paul was preaching about Jesus and who Jesus was. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. And so you, these big, bold statements. But there was a group over here that was going, no, 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 it's not that at all. So right down the middle, the church split. So we see this first church split. And then false teachers started beginning to arise in the church. Now, I'm going to say this. Remember, the series is not just to get a bunch of information, and it's not just about inspiration. It's things that we can apply. It's application. We want to figure out what we can apply to our lives, right? I'm telling you, this is happening in the church right now, and you better be careful what you listen to online or what you listen to on video. Somebody shared with me this past Thursday, a guy that was getting up there, and he was saying that basically all man is corrupt, and, and that God's not gonna, God's not gonna save all of humanity anymore because there's so much corruption in the world. That's not what the Bible says, and that's why it's important. We talk about this all the time. That's why we do access groups and small groups, that in here is our balance. The words of God are our balance. The, the words of God are truth. And so what started happening in this church was false teachers began to arise in the church, and they claimed to have the secret of knowing Christ. Man, am I seeing this in the world, the church world right now? There's certain groups of church kind of sex in church that are going, we have the only way. This is the only way we worship. This is the only way we study. This is the only way we do this, only way we do that. And that's a dangerous place. And so it was between about 81 and 96 AD, um, John was banished 
Now, if you don't know who John, John was one of the apostles. He was banished to the island of Pathmos. He was there exiled there where they were, they, they were basically put in there to die. And it was there where he got the revelation from God about those seven churches. And he addressed the good things and the bad things. And during that period, the Lord gives his assessment through the Holy Spirit uh, about the Ephesian church through John. And so we, we land in, in Revelation chapter 2, and we, we understand, and we're going to kind of uh, study and look through what exactly happened. So Revelation chapter 2, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and I want to make, this is not an angel, like it's not a, with wings and all that stuff. This word right here, several different words that are used, depending on what we're reading, but this word means to the pastor, leader, or the ecclesia, the, the, the person in charge of the church. So he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Verse two, it says this, I know your works. If you have an analog Bible or taking notes, you wanna write this down. Because what he's gonna list out are about eight or nine attributes that this church was doing really well. And at first glance, you just kind of run through them. But if you look at them, these are really good things that the church should be doing. Listen, listen to what it says. Your toil, which means your relentless pursuit and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Verse three, and it says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. I would say that all of us, right? All of us would say, that's really, really, they're really, really important things. Like enduring for the faith is really good. Exposing the, the false teachings in the church is really good. The toil for the kingdom is really good. But he says this in the next verse and you just kind of go, oh my goodness. So they did all these eight or nine things really good, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had had at first. Now, everybody pay attention to me. I need you present for the next couple of minutes. This is really, really important. Okay, this is one of the most important things. You're, I didn't grow up in church. How many people grew up in church? You probably heard this saying, you have left your first love, right? That's not what he's talking about right here. As a matter of fact, it's kind of way different because he's not talking about necessarily this relationship, though this relationship dictates this relationship. He's talking about the relationship we have on the human side of things. He said, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now watch the next line. You have to read everything in the context. It says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. That's what he's saying right there. You have left this right here. The things that you were doing really well when the church started, that's what you're leaving. And in turn, when this relationship isn't right, how many times have we said this? When this relationship isn't right, there is no way this relationship can be right. And if this relationship isn't right, there is no way this relationship can be right. So it's, it's, it's literally, he's saying, listen, you haven't left just the first love, you have left the first works, the things that I told you, how you demonstrated your love to God. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place unless you repent. And he says, yeah, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who had conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he, just let's look at baseline. Here, here's the baseline. He says, you've left the thing that you're supposed to love the worst, the demonstration of how you love me, you've walked away from. You have all the knowledge. You have all the stuff that you want. You have the greatest Bible studies you've given. You go to Sunday school class, but you forgot to do the most important thing. And when I was reading through that, I was thinking, that's the modern church. 
The modern church, we are overtaught and underchallenged. We have the greatest Bible studies ever to be walked on, you know, or seen or read on this planet. We can literally get a master's or a doctorate education online. We don't even need to be in classes anymore. But less and less and less and people are being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're not doing the first works that he's called us to. And it's interesting to me that years before, Paul addressed this with the church. We're gonna look at Ephesians chapter five. It's gonna be our, kind of our baseline for today. And the first two verses talk about this concept of being an imitator. And then he lists out, and I want you to kind of notice that, he lists out some of the offenses that literally in the book of Revelation, he already listed out. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. If you have there, you need to underline this right here because we're gonna talk about it. this is really, really important. As beloved children, the next verse, and walk in love as Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Okay, that's where we're gonna land. But listen to the things that the church of Ephesus is struggling with. And tell me it doesn't appear to be some of the same things that we struggle with in this world. And what put the church of Ephesus, I don't know how else to say it, put the church of Ephesus out of business. They're no longer. 70 AD, they got destroyed. 90 AD, they got destroyed. Now listen what it says, the next verse. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as, it, as, it's, um, as is proper among the saints. Verse four. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. And then he goes on to say, verse five, for you, may be, uh, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Verse six, let no one deceive you with empty words. These are the same things we just read in Revelation chapter two. All the things that he said, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. They struggled with for years. These things, the wrath of God comes up upon the sons of disobedience. Verse seven, therefore do not become partners with them. Verse eight, for at one time you were in darkness. Remember we just read, whatever comes to light is in the light. You were in darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Verse nine, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11 is one of my favorite parts. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, let me just put this on pause for a second because this is not my, my thoughts. This is not a theologian. This is actually history, history. One of the things that happened in the church of Ephesus, so not only did they leave their first love, they were actually masquerading their first love for God as something totally different. They had actually reverted back to these things, sexual morality. There was a tunnel where the, where, the, where the temple of the church of Ephesus was. There was actually a tunnel. And the tunnel went underneath the street and it came up on the other side of the street in the town's largest brothel. So they were going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They would act like they were angels of light. They were acting over light and they would go to the brothel over here. So when he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but uncover, he's saying, listen, what's going on underneath this world right here, what's going on underneath this street is wrong and it needs to be uncovered. So over and over again, we see that in verse 12, it says, it says, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. And then it says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and church, uh, in Christ, it will shine on you. Man, there's a lot there. Oh my gosh, all the things that he just listed out are things that we're dealing with right now in the church every day and in the world we live in. You can't pull up Facebook. You can't pull up a news channel. You can't pull up a social media without all those things attacking. So how do we, what do we do? 
And what was the things? Because if this is right, this is right. And if this is right, this is right. We need to constantly put in check those things, don't we? And we need to make, we don't make sure the first, the first acts, the first love, the first things that we're doing, are we doing those things? Now, I want to give us three things. I'm going to kind of go back to verse one and two of um, Ephesians chapter five. I'm going to kind of just address just three things that I think that if Journey does, if Journey keeps kind of making sure that this is a, a priority, it's one of our core values, our, you know, our core values, that I'm telling you, God will continue to pour out his blessings on us. Here's the first one. We love God. Listen to me. This is really important. We love God by forgiving others. And man, we don't live in a world of forgiveness anymore, do we? We live in a canceled generation. As soon as you do something wrong, I cancel you. It doesn't make a difference if you apologize or you try to get right. Once trust is broken, trust can never be regained. And I understand trust. I don't know how many people are football fans, and I know that there's a lot in this church, but like I remember years ago when, when Joe Paterno, Joe Paterno, one of the greatest coaches, now, I'm not a Penn State fan, but one of the greatest coaches, right? And when it was revealed that he knew the truth about Sandusky, uh, the, the one who was um, doing some things in locker rooms with boys that he shouldn't have been doing. And when he found that, everybody found out Joe Paterno was part of that. What happened was he lost credibility, years and years and years of credibility. It's amazing to me how you can be a credible person for all those years. You can, it takes years to build that, and in seconds, you lose that because of distrust. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. What, 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 is God, what does that mean to us today, years, years down the road? Uh, the first thing I want us to get in Ephesians, a, a few verses before this, and remember this, I don't, I don't know how many people notice it, but the verses and chapters weren't in the Bible originally. When Paul wrote this and when all the writers wrote it, it was later. But in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4.32, he addresses this concept of forgiveness. And we love others by forgiving, uh, we love God by forgiving others. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave who? Forgave you. You are never, can I make a bold statement today? You are never more like God than when you forgive somebody. You are, you are never more like the, the person that Christ wants to be than when we forgive. Gandhi said it like this, and I love it. I know he wasn't a believer, but what a great statement. He said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. The only, the only people, it's a, it's, a, it's a show of strength when we forgive people. It's a show of weakness when we, when we, when we don't offer it. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, wrote this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's easy to be forgiven. Like, hey, man, like I can teach on for Will, you need to forgive that person. But as soon as it, it's me having to forgive, it's a whole different animal. And it's, I want you to, here's a big, another big statement. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room, everybody watching online, everybody down to Sherwood, you are engaged in this thing called life. And you will come across times in your life where you need to offer forgiveness. Hey, let me, let me prove this. How many people are married in this room? How many people know that you have to offer forgiveness in your marriage a lot, especially if you're married to me? Right? If you're married, you have to understand the concept of forgiveness. That's what, one of the biggest things that, that, that tears marriages apart when there's unforgiveness. And I'm not talking about big, high, like, affair. I'm talking about, like, the biggest fight we have ever had was over the fact that she can't read a GPS and I, I don't know how to talk to people. <laughs> I can tell you the spot. I can tell you we can't get <laughs> Dallas, Texas. <laughs> we didn't talk for two days. It's a left. No, it's a right. It's a left. We're back and forth. I'm like, can you not read the GPS? It's, she's, it's talking to you. <laughs> two days. But you know why I sit down one day? We have talk. I'm sorry. I, I messed up. 
How, how, many people, how, many, how many people have kids? If you have kids, you're going to have to learn forgiveness because they do stupid things. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. You, you'll be a father one day. Right? How many people have parents? Most of us. It's like some, some in the back said, oh, I, I think I do. Everybody has by a lot of it. But you know what? You're going to have to learn forgiveness. Right? They were practicing too, just like you are right now. A anybody, anybody work for anybody? Boss? You're going to have to learn forgiveness. They're not going to make all the right decisions. They're going to say the wrong thing at times. Anybody have employees? You have to understand forgiveness. How about this? I'm involved in ministry, but 90% of our church is involved in ministry. You guys do something around here almost all the time, whether it's out there. In ministry, guess what you're going to have to learn to do? You're going to have to learn to forgive people. People make mistakes. I make mistakes. We, we, the church shouldn't be a cancel generation. We shouldn't just cancel people because they got it wrong. And here's one of the things that I've done, and maybe you can help you a little bit. I ask myself two questions every time I need to forgive somebody. Here's the first question. If, in fact, what this person did, would God forgive me? If I did what this person did, you know, to me, if, if, if I offended this person, would God forgive me? And the answer is what? Yes. yes. Now, some of you are going, but you don't know what they did. You're missing the point. It went in, if you start to quantify your error, because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So everybody's below that mark right there. Right. So regardless if it was a big mistake or a little mistake, you've made a mistake. And God would forgive you for this. 1 John 1, 8. If we, see, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. James chapter 2, 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, watch this, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. Meaning, you made one mistake, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's kind of scary, isn't it? So that's the first question. Here's the second question, and it is equally as important. Is there any sin that I have committed for which God has not forgiven me? You know what's funny? We're reading a book. Well, we just got done. What was the book's name, okay, um, Will? Winning with People by John Maxwell. And one of the chapters talks about a hammer. I'm so glad you had it right because Caleb led me astray in first service. He was like, learning with people, living with people. So it was winning with people. But he talked about hammer effect. And you know what happens in the world we live in? We address the people that have, have hurt us or wronged us. We don't approach them the way Jesus approached them. We, we approach them with a hammer. And we, and we literally, we, we, we swat at the little problems with this big old hammer. What would happen instead if we did a, a, a different approach? We took the approach that Jesus took and we offered, in fact, forgiveness. We're never more like God. I said, Ari, we're never more like God. Here's the second thing. This is really important. Second thing. We love God for suffering, well, uh, uh, suffering for others. Ephesians 5.1. Let's go back to that passage. This is, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now watch the next verse. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved, and he gave himself up for us. Um, question real quick. How many people, and some of you probably, it's before your time. How many people, um, how many people have watched the, the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ? How many people? Raise your hands real high. Um, devastating movie. Like, I've only seen it once. That's all I can see. But I remember watching what they did to Jesus. I get a lump in my throat just thinking about it. And, and, and how he was, his face was disfigured and his back was disfigured. And, and when we think about suffering, we think, wow, like, uh, he gave himself up for us. 
I don't think, though, that God's asking us. And as a matter of fact, I love the way it describes, like, I'm going to read from the message of Fast and Philippians. It's a really important passage. Watch this. He says, think of yourselves this way, Christ. This is what Jesus did or thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of the status no matter what. Okay, verse, the next few verses. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity, and he took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, and that, that he died a selfless, obedient death, and that the worst kind of the death of that of a crucifixion. Just stop right there. Don't, don't change this. We will never be called upon to do what Jesus did. And I'm thankful that we live in a culture that that'll never happen. Like, I'm thankful that I get to stand up here week after week, or somebody else gets to stand up here. We get to share the love of Christ. You know, we get to do all the worship. But that doesn't discount the fact that we need to be selfless and that we're going to have to sacrifice for people. It's interesting because I love these words, selfless and obedient. That's what it means today. He's not going to ask us to suffer by dying on a cross. Thank you, Jesus, that it only needed to be done once, and he did it. But that means, that means we're going to have to do the same thing Jesus did. We're going to have to act the same way Jesus did. And I just think we live in such a weird culture because Jesus denied himself. We're called to deny ourselves. He, 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 he could have, he, he uh, you know, I, I'm God, I could do it. But he says, no. And so that's what he's telling us to do. Matthew chapter 16, 24, kind of another, kind of leads us right down this road. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's saying, listen, I want you to act the same way that Jesus did. I want you to deny yourself. And some of you guys go, well, what's that mean? You know what that means? We're going to have to deny ourselves. That means there's going to be times in our lives where we're going to be inconvenient. And I, I know some of you are going, how can you equate suffering with inconvenience? It's the closest thing we have. There will be times that we will be inconvenienced for Christ. And if you're not being inconvenienced for Christ, you're probably not putting yourself in a position to be used by Christ. If you're not in that position where God's inconvenient, where you're getting a phone call in the middle of the night, that you're the lifeline between the cross and somebody ready to take themselves out, that you're not doing for what the least of these, my brethren, you're, you're doing when you're, when you're not in the world, treating your neighbor the, the way God would treat them, then you're not inconvenienced yourself. And, and I know what some of you are saying, and the problem we have in this world is so many of us think that we are the center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe. Jesus is the center of the he, is the, he is the star of the story, and we're continually trying to make him famous. That's our job on this side of eternity. What would happen if we really did that in the world we live in? What would, what would happen if the world really saw people today suffering for him? Let me give you the third thing. We're going to close right here. We love God by serving others. Now, there's a really sad statistic that I, I've heard over the years, but this past week I was reading, I'm reading a book on serving, and it says that it says 80% of the work in the church is done by 20% of the people. 80% of the work in the church is done by 20% of the people. And right away, because I'm a how do I fill the glass up kind of person, I'm not a half full, half empty, I'm a fill, let's fill the thing up. My question was this, or my statement was this, what would happen if 100% of the church did 100% of the work. What, what, what if everybody found their God-given ability, they found their little thumbprint and did exactly what God, it, it may be small, it may be big, whatever it is they did that. What would the church, what would the world look, how would the world look at us 
Would they see us differently? I, I love the way, the last part of this in Ephesians chapter five, verse one, it says, therefore be imitators of God of beloved children. And then it says this in verse two, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering. He gave himself willingly. And it was, I was thinking about this. If you, if you read through scripture, one of my favorite passages, and we've talked about it in John 13 before, but it's right before Jesus is ready to die. And Jesus comes in and he recognizes that there was supposed to be a servant at the door and there was no servant there. And, and, and he grabs a basin and he grabs a towel and he starts doing the nastiest thing somebody can do. Like, I don't know about you guys, I can do a lot of things. I can barely look at another person's foot. Feet are just, I don't even go, I, I can't even go get a pedicure because there was feet in there. But I'm, 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 I'm like, so Jesus starts to, in the nasty sand and the manure and, and the mud and all that stuff, he grabs a basin. He doesn't, he, he doesn't wait for somebody else. He grabs a basin and he grabs a rag and he puts a towel around his waist and he bends down and he starts washing. He starts washing every, every one of their, and the wild thing about the story to me is he was washing feet of people that he knew was going to deny him. Then in just a couple days, Peter was going to go, nope, don't know the guy. Can you imagine that? Not only that, he washed Judas's feet, who was going to turn him over. Jesus being 100% God, he knew exactly what was going to happen, and he washed their feet anyway. Now, most of us know the story, but do we know why? Do, do we know why Jesus shares this story? And honestly, at times it doesn't even seem to fit until you read the tale into the story. Until you read, read what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, or John chapter 13, verse whatever scripture is on that back screen that I keep going back and forth to. John 13. He says, when we had washed their feet and he put on the outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? He said, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so am I. He said, if I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now watch this. This is what he said. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. That's why he washed. It wasn't so we could have foot washing services in church. As a matter of fact, we, we never see it again. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, okay, to be the church, you have to do a foot washing. And he's just saying, just do my example. Be what I am to the world that you live in. Wash your kids, wash your kids' teachers' feet. Don't blast them on Facebook. Be a servant to them. Be, be a servant to your boss. Be a servant to your spouse. Be a servant to your kids. Be a servant to your mom or dad. Be a servant to the world we're living in. I have a challenge today. I'm gonna to challenge every person in this room to take this challenge. Every day. Every day, try to find something to do for somebody. A kind act, some type of act of service. Cut somebody's grass, wash somebody's car. Do something nice for somebody. See, here's the deal. I've had people say this over, over, over and over again to me. And, and the, world, the, the world doesn't always understand my profession of faith. You guys know what a profession of faith is, right? Like, I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior when I was 17 years old. 1983, I asked Jesus. And my profession of faith is I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I know that if I was to die right now, and I hope it doesn't happen, if I was to die right now, I'm going to heaven. 
All right, how many people in this room can say that same thing? That's a profession of faith. You have a profession of faith. They may not understand your profession of faith, but they can't question your acts of service. They may not get the profession of faith part. They may not understand all the Jesus thing, but they can't deny the fact when you're doing something in Jesus' name. When you bring a cup of cold water, so what would happen? Let's just try seven days. What would happen for the next seven days? Do something every day for which you do not get paid, that you're not getting paid for. This is not part of your job. You're not going to get a check at the end of the week or somebody's not going to deposit something. You're going to do it. Oh, let me, let, me, let me take a step further. This will really freak some of us out. Let's do something every day for a week that we don't even get recognized for, that, 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 no, that nobody even knows, knows who did it. I shared in first service uh, several weeks ago. It may have been a couple months ago. I walked into my office, which if you know anything about my office, it's not as tight as Fort Knox, but I have a cipher um, lock on the back and I have two locks before you can get into my office. Somehow or another, somebody got in my office and I was fine with it because when I got to my office, on my desk was a special gift. I mean, this person knew me almost as good as I, they, they, they know what I like, they know my taste, they know exactly what gets me excited. They know what's important to me. They all of a sudden, and that gift was sitting on my desk. There was no name tag. There was nothing. To this day, I have an idea who did it, but I really don't know who did it. And it was one of those deals where I thought, that is fantastic. So that day, I took a challenge that I was going to do something for somebody that I didn't get recognition for, that nobody was so. So every day, not every day, most every day, I've been trying to do something for somebody that they don't even know who did it. What would happen if we did that in our that the people around you don't even know that you're the one to do it, and you're not. I'm gonna make a really bold statement right here. The church at Ephesus was guilty of leaving their first works and their first love. This relationship here wasn't right, and it made this relationship not. And I believe if we were to do the three things that we talked about this today, continually, if we did, we were relentless in those three things, that we were continually offering forgiveness to the world around us, that we were we're selfless, that we would suffer for people, that we would be inconvenienced doing certain things, and that we would sacrifice. I don't think there would ever be a day where an angel of the Lord would come to the church leader, and go, I'm about to wipe you out. I believe if we do those three things over and over and over again, we're going to hear instead of repent or be removed, we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. You have done good. Let's pray. God, in this moment, I have a couple different prayers, God, but in this moment right here, I pray that we would, the things that you commended the church of Ephesus on, that we, that we would do those things, that we would toil and we would, that truth would be important and we would have patient endurance. We would do all those things. But I pray, God, that we would never take our eyes off of the most important thing, you told them to remember where they came from. God, remind us where we've come from. God, remind us, take us back to that moment in time just before we knew who you were 
And let us just be reminded of the sin that, that, that was in our lives, the, the struggle that was in our lives, the, the baggage that was in our lives. And let us go back to that moment and be reminded that the world is fitting and sitting in that same moment. And that God, you have called us to make your name famous in the world we live in. God, let us never forget those first works of forgiving people and, and suffering for people and sacrificing for people. God, let us never forget those moments. God, I pray that you would be with us. Thank you. Thank you for the first 18 years. It's been an amazing ride. But God, in that video, I said something I think the best is yet to come still. And I'm standing on your word where it says, exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. And God, we have some big dreams. I pray that we would follow you every step of the way and do everything you want us to do. And I pray, God, that we would look at these seven churches over the next couple of weeks and recognize the bad and install the good in this church right here that you call Journey. I pray, God, that you would be with us over the next several weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you need prayer or help taking your next step, email our team at nextsteps at journeycommunity.net.